So let's begin. I would like to begin with Marx's, Marx's well-known formula of religion as the opium of the people. I think we should rethink this formula today. It is true that today radical Islam, but also Christian fundamentalism, are function like opium of the people. A false confrontation with capitalist modernity, which allows us to dwell in our ideological dream. But I hope that today, in our Western world, two other versions of the opium of the people are much more actual. And you may have guessed my paradox, these two are opium and people, the people. Uh, uh, as a young French philosopher, Laurent de Chuter demonstrated, chemistry in its scientific version is becoming part of us, of our daily lives. Large aspects of our lives are characterized by the management of our emotions by drugs, from everyday use of sleeping pills and antidepressants. And this is not marginal. I read a statistic in Estados Unidos, United States, over 70% of all academics, professors, and so on, are on something like uh, 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 Xanax or whatever, use drugs. Uh, so, from everyday life to, of course, hard narcotics. We are not just controlled by impenetrable social powers. Our very emotions are outsourced to chemical stimulation. The stakes of this chemical intervention is contradictory. We use drugs first to keep external excitement, shocks, anxieties, violence under control. That is to say to desensitize us. Yeah, no, you are too shocked, too excited, you take a drug to calm you down. And then we again use drugs to generate artificial excitement, like if you are too depressed and lack desire, you again take drugs. Drugs just react to two opposed threats to our daily lives, overexcitement and depression. And it's crucial to notice how these two uses of drugs relate to the couple of private and public. In the developed Western countries, our public lives more and more lack collective excitement, provided by a genuine political engagement. From time to time it happens. Podemos, Syriza, Bernie Sanders in Estados Unidos, but politics is not exciting today. While drugs provide excitement, but in the private sphere. So drugs perform the euthanasia of public life and the artificial excitement in our private lives. Second opium. The rise of populism demonstrates that the opium of the people can also be the people itself. Why? Uh, it's clear in the case of 
populism. Like, people is like kind of a big fetish, we are all united in it. When you refer to the people, somehow antagonisms disappear. But now comes the trouble. I like to provoke with theses which are not popular. I think that the latest in this series of opiums is anti-fascism. A new spectre is haunting liberal progressive politics in Europe. The spectre of fascism. Trump in the United States, Le Pen in France, Orban in Hungary. They are all demonized as the new evil towards which we should unite all our forces. Every minimal doubt and reserve are immediately proclaimed a sign of secret collaboration with fascism. Now, to avoid any doubt, I think they really are a threat. What I'm saying is that often this demonizing image of a fascist threat serves as a new political fetish, uh, obfuscating the basic social antagonism. I remember, when was it, half a year ago, before the presidential elections in France, when Macron was the anti-fascist candidate, how every, even tiny, criticism of Macron was dismissed as, ah, I was proclaimed uh, 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 objectively working for Marine Le Pen. Some of my French ex-friends even coined the term Le Pen-Trotskyist. You pretend to be a leftist Trotskyist, but by criticizing the moderate center, you uh, objectively, in the best Stalinist way, work for, work for Marine Le Pen. Now, I respect the choice of saying, in this desperate situation, Marine Le Pen is the danger, so let's vote for Macron. Nothing against this. But we should nonetheless be aware all the time that Macron stands for that establishment, financial and so on, which gave birth to Marine Le Pen. Marine Le Pen reacted to that uh, establishment. So, uh, 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 again, this is why this uh, anti-new right, anti-fascism is dangerous. It renders us blind for the fact of how many motives, which were once motives of the left, are appropriated by populist right. Look, in the United States, I was told that Steve Bannon is now in Spain, uh, giving advices to right-wing parties. But you know why Steve Bannon really split with uh, Trump? He opposed Trump's tax reform. And he said, no, we should raise the taxes for the rich up to 50%. We need big public works and so on. Trump, sorry, Bannon is a white supremacist, racist, but it's very sad that only he dares to advocate things that no liberal leftist even dares to, uh, to mention. Now, my next step. Uh, in this new condition of new opiums of the people, how does ideology work? My 
premise here is that in order to be operative, every ideology has to be inconsistent. Its explicit norms have to be supplemented by implicit norms telling us how to deal with explicit norms. You know, that's the mystery of ideology. Often things are explicitly prohibited, but the message between the lines is do it but discreetly. Or vice versa. The whole Stalinism functioned like this. In Soviet Constitution of 1935-6, it says if a group of citizens wants to establish a new political party, 36, Soviet Union, not only you have the right to do it, but the state has to give you financial support for your newspaper and offices and so on. Now, try to do it, you know. So, uh, uh, this inconsistency was always here of ideology. But today, it works in a much more radical way. How? I'm sorry if you know this story. It's so beautiful that I like to repeat it. I was about two years ago in a hotel in Skopje, Macedonia. And my wife is a heavy smoker, so we asked, do you have smoking rooms? And we got a wonderful answer from the guy at the reception. He said, no, sorry, uh, he said, sorry, uh, it's the law, smoking is prohibited, but it's not a problem, you have, uh, you have uh, uh, ashtrays in all the rooms. And then we entered the room and I was so shocked, please, uh, this one, look what we found in the room. <laughs> Literally, the ashtray which had as an aesthetic supplement the sign for prohibiting smoking. I think this is a, a very good metaphor of our ideological predicament today. I remember then, I remember a similar experience from my military life. My God, how much I learned in the army, because the army was full of these inconsistencies. We had in the morning classes, one hour of this, one hour of that. One morning, it was like a divine coincidence. The first class was some big topic, uh, international agreements, rules of war, and the officer explained us how in a combat, even today, this is the International Geneva Convention law, uh, when parachuters attack you, you are not allowed to shoot at them while they are in the air. No, you must wait that they touch ground. Okay. Then, in a divine coincidence, next hour was one in the series of how you use your gun. The topic of the day, I'm not kidding, was how to hit a parachuter in the air. You know, you, know, you have to judge the velocity of the wind, the direction, and so on. And then I, I said, I, I was stupid, I said to the officer, but comrade, isn't there a slight inconsistency between what you are telling us now and what you, are, you were telling us uh, half an hour ago? And he answered me correctly. He said, aren't you some kind of intellectual? How can you be so stupid then not to understand that? And it's very similar. It's pretty similar, I claim, 
to die. Things like that happen all the time. For example, if you are to ask an American intelligence officer, do you torture? He would say, of course not, it's prohibited by the law, but here you have a book about waterboarding, you know, how you do it. It's more or less exactly, uh, exactly the same. So, let's go uh, on. I want nonetheless to focus on today's problems. How does this new ideological constellation uh, reflect itself in a particular domain of struggle for emancipation in feminism. Uh, I remember, first we should become aware, because now we also celebrate these days, literally, half a century of May 68. You can learn a lot about our predicament by simply comparing today's emancipatory struggles and the struggle of 68. In the aftermath of 68, the French progressive press published a whole series of petitions demanding the decriminalization of pedophilia, claiming that the artificial and oppressive, uh, cultural oppressive uh, frontier that separates the sexual life of small children from adults should be abolished and the right to freely dispose with one bodies should be extended also to children. And they explicitly meant children from four, five, six years from this early sexualization and their parents. The motto was prohibiting incest is, <coughs> sorry, is the last barrier of reactionary Catholic uh, forces, and so on, and so on. Now, now you think, okay, I'm exaggerating, this was some marginal, uh, uh, marginal uh, petition of lunatics. Maybe, but let me give you a list of the lunatics who signed this petition. Sartre, Simone de Beauvoir, Derrida, Barthes, Foucault, Aragon, Félix Gattari, Gilles Deleuze, Lyotard, and so on, and so on. Today, however, pedophilia is perceived as one of the worst crimes, and instead of fighting for it in the name of anti-Catholic progress, it is rather associated with the dark side of the Catholic Church. Uh, I remember the comic victim of this change was Daniel Cohn-Bendy, the hero of 68. You find everywhere in any history of May 68 his photos around Sorbonne on the barricades. A couple of years ago, I remember, he gave an interview where naively he described how in his young years he worked in a kindergarten and he said that he regularly uh, played masturbatory games with young girls there. To his surprise, he faced a brutal backlash. They even, some people wanted him to be removed from European Parliament and so on and so on. Now, why this change? I am not an old 68 guy. I was all, always pretty critical towards the legacy of 68. But we should try to understand why this shift. 
this shift can be nicely identified in a recent polemical exchange between Germaine Greer, the hero of that first generation feminists from the 60s, and some this second generation today's feminist. Germaine Greer made some critical remarks about Me Too movement. And today's critics uh, reacted very critically uh, and rejected Greer's main thesis. Women should sexually liberate themselves from male domination and assume active sexual life without playing the game of victimhood. Uh, uh, they, today's critics uh, claim that this point was valid in the sexual liberation movement of the 60s, but today the situation is different. What happened in between is the sexual emancipation of women, their assuming social life as active sexual beings with full freedom of initiative, was commodified. True, women are no longer perceived as passive objects of male desire, but their active sexuality now appears in the male eyes as their permanent availability readiness to engage in sexual interaction at any point. I think there is a moment of truth in it. Why? Let me go on. This here is my principal position. In the West, we are becoming massively aware of the extent of coercion and exploitation in sexual relations. However, we should bear in mind also the no less massive fact that millions of people on a daily basis flirt, play the game of seduction with the clear aim to get a partner for making love. The result of the modern Western culture is that both sexes are expected to play an active role in this game. When women dress provocatively to attract male gaze, when they, if you want, objectify themselves, to seduce them. They don't do it offering themselves as passive objects. They are the active agent of their own objectivization, manipulating men, playing ambiguous games, including the full right, of course, to step out of the game at any moment. This active role of women is their freedom which bothers so much all kind of fundamentalists. Uh, uh, from Muslims who recently prohibited women touching and playing with bananas and other fruit, because on TV they claim this resembles masturbating a man, it should be prohibited. From our own uh, ordinary male chauvinists who explode in violence against a woman who first provokes them and then reject their Advances. But what I want to say here is that this term, I reject it, often, this term often used by feminists, male gaze objectivizes me. I don't want to be objectivized. Well, I am for objectivization, mutual. Sorry, but objectivization simply means 
I want to be sexually attractive. I offer myself. And the rule should not be, in this way you somehow uh, humiliate yourself. No. This is maybe the greatest achievement in sexual liberation, that women have the right not to be objectivized by men, but to objectivize themselves. The problem is only that they should control the game. Furthermore, I, at a more general level, I cannot get rid of the suspicion that the politically correct cultural left is getting so fanatic in advocating progress, in fighting new and new battles against cultural and sexist apartheid, that they are doing it to cover up their own immersion into global capitalism. You know where, when my bells started to ring? When there was the first moment of LGBT+, transgender movement, and so on, did you notice how it was immediately supported by all the big names of popular digital industry? This new, I call them corporate organic intellectuals, uh, Bill Gates, Tim Cook, Mark Zuckerberg, uh, and so on. How did we come to this? As many conservatives noticed, and they are right here, our time is marked by the progressive disintegration of a shared network of customs, which ground what George Orwell referred to as common decency. Such standards are dismissed as a yoke that subordinates individual freedom to some proto-fascist organic social forum. In such a situation, liberal permissivity reverts to an explosion of legal and moral rules into an endless process of legalization and moralization called the fight against all forms of discrimination. I'm quite shocked here how many of the leftists who knew very well Michel Foucault's work on control, classification, and so on, all that, now they mobilized extreme forms of control classification like 32 names for gender identities, this form of harassment, that form of harassment. I agree with all this. What I don't agree with is that uh, you can, in this way, by imposing explicit rules that you can control, that you can control sexuality in this way. Let's do it now. I would prefer go to please uh, uh, the short one. Yes, but before you do it, you know which dimension is missed here. Sexuality works always through innuendos, double games. You say something, <laughs> expecting something else. I will show you now a scene, a very short clip, ten seconds. But I love it from an English working class melodrama, Brust Off, where. Two people, one of them you will notice is Ivan uh, McGregor, the great star. Uh, <coughs> uh, flirt, he accompanies the girl home, and then when they are in front of her building, they have this short dialogue. Very short. Please do that one. Is this? Yes. Just put it. No, no, no. 
this one. Skip this one. It's too... Although it would be wonderful to have that one. Okay, yeah, yeah. Do you want to come up for a coffee? I don't drink coffee. I haven't got any. Stop. This is sexuality. It's not just that it's obvious as to the content that basically he's telling him, come up and F me. But you know what's so beautiful? That if she were to say this directly, there would have been nothing liberating in it. Not just that in this way she is more polite, but this very form of making a gesture which is meaning, this very form eroticizes the situation. Again, if she were to say, I need sex, you want to come up, yes, first, let, fine, let's go up. Everything would have been lost. This is sexuality. This is what you cannot regulate. Uh, my last, more pessimist point here. One should also bear in mind that patriarchal domination corrupts both of its poles, also its victims. I would like to quote here Arthur Kestler, the big anti-communist. He says, if power corrupts, the reverse is also true. Persecution corrupts the victims, though perhaps in subtler and more tragic ways, end of quote. Consequently, one should also talk about feminine manipulation and emotional brutality, ultimately. A desperate reply to male domination, of course. Women fight back, and they should, any way they can. And one should admit that in many parts of our society, in which traditional patriarchy is to a large extent undermined, men are no less under pressure, so the proper strategy would be, that's what I would have done if I were to be a feminist, which I am, but a woman feminist, to, uh, to make it clear how, and this does not in any way legitimize male domination and violence, but how many for forms of today's male violence are a desperate reaction, basically, of impotence. I mean, social, economic, and so on, impotence. The clearest case here is, uh, is I think, uh, uh, South Africa. Friends there told me South Africa is now, breaks all the world record in, uh, records in uh, rape. Rape happens there statistically every four or five seconds. They even have a special subspecies of rapes. Every day around two of them happen. They even have, I forgot it, a term for them, where man is killing a woman while raping her, strangling her, cutting her with a knife or whatever. But I think you cannot understand this without the desperate situation in South Africa, the disappointment of the black majority. Poverty is now practically the same as under apartheid, but there is much more crime, insecurity, and so on, and so on. I would aim at this if I were to be a radical feminist. Next point that we should understand, I'm returning now to my basic line, what is happening today 
in our ideology that it functioned in this strange way. Uh, we should not be afraid to look at popular culture. I think even people who deal with popular culture like me and many others, we still underestimate the extreme importance and ideological power of the universe of video games. Uh, are you aware that more money is for already for a couple of years turned around with video games than with cinema and TV series together? It's almost, to use the old-fashioned Marxist terms, the basic state ideological apparatus today. Now, what I find interesting in video games is how a new mode of subjectivity is emerging there. Uh, how the subjectivity which is in some sense pre-edipal, you are not fixed to your finitude, you are freely floating in a kind of a, a perverse multiplicity state. Uh, that is to say, what video games impose on you is a kind of a undeadness, precisely in the sense of Stephen King and horror stories, an obscene immortality. When you are immersed into a game, you dwell in a universe of undeadness where no annihilation is definitive since after every destruction you can return to the beginning and start the game again. We should notice how this is not something new, but it appeared already in with modernity itself, as Jacques Lacan noted in the sad universe of Marquis de Sade. You have in victims, Juliette for example, this same undeadness. Juliette is tortured in all possible ways, but magically in the next scene he is already there, again there, as beautiful as ever. Another domain of this undeadness is uh, the universe of cartoons, Tom and Jerry, and so on. You know, it has the same undeadness. In one scene, Tom or Jerry is, I don't know, run over by a truck, cut into pieces. Okay, catastrophe, but oh, in next scene it is here, and so on. And as some theorists of uh, hardcore pornography noticed, you have the same logic in hardcore pornography. You see ejaculation, but then, I'm not advising you to see, they're extremely boring. The only use of hardcore pornography for me is if somebody is obsessed with sex, show him a very bad, vulgar, hardcore pornography, he will be cured. But what, I, what even I noticed is how you see a regulation, and then they don't even need Kleenexes to wipe it off. Simply, the game goes on, and they can do it again and again and again. Uh, what happens here? Now comes my pessimism. I think what emerged in modernity is, and this is what is mobilized in video games, is a new form of immortality, which is not the noble immortality of I may die physically, but in some world spirit or memory of others I will survive. But an obscene immortality, I can put it like this in Hegelian, Hegel terms, that it is a weird 
negation of negation. We have some high goal. Then we have a downward movement, things go wrong, but then the situation goes so stupid that you cannot even fall apart or disintegrate or die properly. Uh, uh, for example, uh, uh, the examples here would have been many good comical novels play on this. You are desperate and you kill yourself. Try to, but then something always fails. I read one marvelous short story where the guy takes pills to kill himself. By mistake, he takes a laxative, he ends up just in the toilet. You know, this logic or with happiness, you say, my life is hell, I will try to be as unhappy as possible. But then, you find some small masochist pleasure even in that, you cannot even go down, uh, go down properly. Uh, now comes the really evil part. Isn't something of this at work for today's political left? Uh, the left, the traditional left, not your Podemos, Podemos is more intelligent, are looking for the true working class, you know. From the 20s, radical left has this problem. We have a good plan for the revolution, where is the subject? Working class. And then they are looking for ersatz working class. It's as if precisely proletarians don't want to be pure proletarians, like, oh, you see, I have only my chains to lose. No, no, you don't have only your chains to lose. You have a credit, you have a car, you worry, and always something that prevents you to be radically a proletarian. And this is, it's a very evil, I warn you, remark, what I find in some of my leftist friends who celebrate immigrants in a wrong way. They secretly hope that, okay, we are here corrupt, that we all have small pleasures, not so bad. Maybe immigrants with nothing to lose will be finally the true proletarians, you know. It's, it's a pretty uh, desperate situation. It doesn't work. Okay, now comes the really uh, evil part. Uh, uh, no, uh, okay, first I just want to conclude this part by emphasizing how... Uh, what I am describing here in this uh, false immortality in cartoons and so on, video games, it's not just fantasy. I read some investigation of our erotic life where they say that more and more people act, for example, in real erotic interaction as if it's a, as if it's a video game. I start with that lady or man, it doesn't work, no problem, I withdrew, I start again, as if we are freely floating in some virtual uh, space. Uh, uh, this liberation, and I'm not saying this is bad, this is just ideology, that we should accept our mortality and so on and so on. I think we should use this new logic of virtual space. We should use it also in order to see how we shouldn't be constrained by reality. We should relate to reality, to our real life, and this is what art is about, as one of the possible virtual 
words and play with it to change it and so on. And now we come to your great guy. I don't even generally like him, but this painting that I will show always fascinated me. Picasso's, uh, Pablo Picasso's, uh, what's the title? The, the, a woman throwing, you can put it on, a woman throwing a stone. Why do I like it? Hegel said somewhere that a good portrait of a person resembles this person more than the person itself. A good painting of a woman does not reproduce her reality. First, it must be a violent painting. In the, in violent in the sense that you have the object, the woman. You cut it into pieces. You do the work of abstraction. Hegel knew this, that the greatness of human mind is not that precisely it's not holistic. You have a holistic image and you say, let's pick this out, let's pick that out, and let's do a new weird monstrosity. This is what, this is for me again a model painting. It's a monstrosity, but somehow, sorry for using this platonic term, somehow the essence of a woman drawing a stone is here in more directly than a realist painting. I'm very naively platonic here. I believe in ideas, of course, not in eternal sky ideas, but ideas in the sense of every person has an essence, not platonic essence, but essence in the sense of Deleuzean more of all the hidden potentialities and so on and so on that go far beyond the immediate reality. And this is what art is doing at its most elementary. Precisely cut into reality in a very brutal way to bring out, I see in this, all the potentials of the woman, the fury, the fragility, and so on, and so on, and so on. This is, for me, a nice example of uh, a nice example of, uh, of uh, what I would call thinking in art. This painting is thinking. It's not an irrational impression of a woman. Forget about feelings. He's doing the thinking. Thinking means you have an image, but you try to understand it, you cut it into parts, you violently dismember it, and through this disfiguration, the domain of thoughts, ideas, essences appear. In this sense, I am a materialist uh, platonist. So again, in this way, we came to another topic, the mixture of virtuality and reality, which I think is crucial about sexual matters. Sexuality in sexuality, we are never simply alone in the sense of or me with my partner. There is always another dimension in it, either another person's gaze, we imagine a gaze observing us. I think you cannot understand sexuality without referring to that mythic past, you remember, there are two big examples. You remember, they found, I think in Mexico, I don't know where, some 
paintings on the flat ground uh, by, I think, Aztecs. But you know what's the mystery? You cannot see them from the ground, that they are paintings. You must be very high up to see them. So, for whom were the Aztecs doing this, drawing these lines? Or the same, everybody knows this, ancient Roman viaducts. They have small statues and reliefs also on the top, invisible to human gaze. Now, wait a minute, this is not for me a proof of God. You know, I am a materialist. I'm just saying that it's our natural predisposition to imagine being observed by a virtual gaze. Now comes the obscene part. I'm sorry if some of you, uh, I'm sorry if, uh, if uh, some of you will be offended by it, but I will draw, don't be afraid, also again a feminist lesson from it. I, I uh, debated with friends, a very obscene debate, uh, what would have been the fundamental archetype of hardcore pornography? And I think, okay, I don't have vast knowledge there, they had better knowledge, but they convinced me that the archetypal scene would be this one of, for male chauvinist uh, hardcore pornography. A woman on the bed, I'm sorry for this, but you will see the important lesson, with her legs up, a man penetrating her, and you see clearly in front the penetration, but now comes the crucial feature. Uh, man is purely instrumentalized. In many of the short films that I've seen, you don't even see the man's face. His Duty is just bam bam to do it. But, and they must suffer very much while they do this, between the woman's legs and then the man penetrating her, there is some space, always this happens, where you see the woman's face looking at you at the camera and uh, making some, uh, uh, I cannot do this sounds and so on. You see, it's not immediacy. The way they stage sex is your gaze is included into it. And I claim at some basic level, this happens always. Now, what is the feminist lesson? It's not simply that woman is nonetheless not doing so bad because she is minimally subjectivized. I think it's much more sadder and brutal for women than for men. Man is just an instrument, who cares about him? They are usually, this always depresses me, some anonymous sailors with cheap tattoos and so on. I don't know how they get them. But the woman has to address directly the camera, which you are not allowed to do it in usual fiction films, and has to play the game of asserting her pleasure, all the moaning and so on, sounds and so on. So I claim... It's totally wrong to claim that I, if as a male chauvinist, I watch a hardcore movie of this type, that I identify with the perpetrator. I imagine myself uh, to be at the place of the guy who is doing it. No. I, he's a pure instrument. I, I am a pure observer who is looking for a proof of woman's enjoyment.
And I think this is a much worse humiliation for the woman. Much worse than being just an object of instrument is to be, how should I call this, forcefully, oppressively subjectivized. Everybody knows this is for me, male chauvinism at its worst. We, when we are at our worst, we don't just exploit women. We want them to praise us, to enjoy it, and so on and so on. So, uh, again, don't just protest objectivization. Protest even more where you have to act as a woman, as a subject, but as a, as it were, fake subject, where your very subjectivity is imposed on you. And I know cases, a psychiatrist told me, where a man, her partner, got furious because he was having sex with, for example, his wife, but the wife said, okay, okay, it's my marital duty, but didn't participate enough in it. And that made the man furious often. A man beats a woman like this false. You have even to play the game of being a free, of being a free subject and, uh, and, uh, and uh, enjoying it. Uh, back to, uh, back to, uh, back to that idea of uh, imaginary virtual gaze, like in, <coughs> imagine when we make love, we are like those Aztec statues or on the top of viaduct, you know. We always imagine a gaze. That's the first thing. Sex is never immediate. The second thing, maybe even more important, is that it's not enough to play the game of uh, 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 getting rid of repression and being a pure perverse subject of showing it all and so on and so on. In sexuality, what is Freud said something ingenious. He said that, you know, that the usual cliche, here they were very male chauvinist in 68, when I was young, the idea was women are hysterics, they provoke the master, but they really want a master, a better master, while we men can be perverts. We go to the end, we get rid of all prohibitions. We, we really do what hysterics also dream. Uh, Freud says something ingenious. He says that, the, uh, that uh, in perversion, nowhere is repression, verdrängung, stronger than in perversion. Why? Because what is repressed is not the thing itself, in the sense of you have an artistic depiction of sex, but then the real thing is just the act itself. As that example of uh, hardcore porno, of Gato, something must be added to it on the edge. For example, I saw my wife was looking at it. No, I like a bad commercial TV series, but I don't like sex in the city. But nonetheless, one of them had an interesting turn, where Miranda, the ugly one, but my favorite, I hate all other things, uh, makes love with a guy, and then the guy tells her, why are you so cold? I would like you to talk while I'm making love to you, all the dirty things that come to your mind. 
Okay, she gets into it slowly with some effort and does tell all the dirty thoughts. But then at some point she says something that shouldn't have been mentioned. You know, she says, I notice how satisfied you are when in the middle of lap making I stick my finger into your ass, you know. And then the guy totally collapses, loses in, you know, I think with every abolition of prohibitions is like this. Yes, we do whatever we want, but there is something which is not even very radical, some remark, some gesture that is the true place of what Lacan called plus de juillet, surplus enjoyment. And this is not there in the depth. It's something on the margin, like here, a small remark or whatever. This is why I don't trust people who play perverts. I don't have any obstacles. I do whatever I want. My answer would be, okay, but what is your version of sticking a finger up your ass, you know? That's your stick. And maybe Richard Handel is doing it, it's so amusing. Lubitsch, in his movie, The Smiling Lieutenant, did something like this. It's a Hollywood movie, although just before, although before Hayes uh, uh, Code was imposed from 31, you, I will not go into the story, we don't have time, just it's Maurice Chevalier, when he was young, plays a great seducer, officer of Austrian army, and he sings a song, which if you ask me, is embarrassing to listen. Not anything, not anything directly pornographic. He, the whole song is a comparison between making love, penetrating the woman, and shooting, ratatata, in the army. And it's all this very vulgar comparison. We soldiers are always on our duty, and so on. But although it's just a vulgar metaphor, no pornography, if you ask me, to watch this is for me worse than to watch a simple hardcore pornography. Do it now. It's just a very short song. It's just a vulgar formula. We know to what it refers, but in a way it's much more condensed pleasure, vulgar, than let's call it real sex itself. And uh, I even know, I will tell you a private secret, not from my life, but 
from a friend. He wanted to have, uh, and I'm not my best friend, I'm not telling you my own best friend. Uh, he wanted to make love with his girlfriend and they watched this movie days before and she told him, okay, what about some ratatata? And it was over. He was not able to do it, you know. Uh, you see, this is what Lacan called plus de juire. Surplus enjoyment, very important, a notion Lacan elaborated with direct reference to Marx, Merver, uh, surplus value. That gaze in the pornographic scene or Aztec and so on, uh, 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 drawings, is the surplus enjoyment or ratata here. What makes sex obscene is precisely this apparent metaphors, details which provide surplus enjoyment. And not to lose time, I want to conclude just with a brief exercise into theology. We have a wonderful, and I'm proud to do this in Spain, which is Catholic country like my own, uh, in uh, Thomas Aquinas, Summa Theologica. He there gets caught in these paradoxes because he's bothered by this problem. Do people who are in paradise, are they allowed to see, to take a look at the people who suffer in hell? The answer should be yes, because by definition, for his theology, people in, in paradise can know everything about reality, so it shouldn't be prohibited. But there is a problem. Because in paradise there is no suffering, just enjoyment, pleasure. So, isn't this a perversion? How can you enjoy seeing other people suffering, burning there? And he avoids, in a very cheap scholastic way, this conclusion. He distinguishes between two types of enjoyment. He said it would be bad to enjoy directly when you see them burning, whatever in hell, their suffering. But he said, if you look as a good Christian at that suffering, you are impressed by the majesty of divine justice. And that's what you really enjoy. It's a trick. It doesn't work. But if we read this problem in a Lacanian way, ah, it appears in a totally new light. What if, and every good Christian knows this, even Kierkegaard mentioned this, the way it's usually described, Paradise must be an extremely boring place, you know. And people always have a suspicion that life in hell has to be much more interesting, you know. Orgies, you drink, okay, there is fire, barbecue, you dance, whatever. So, uh, in paradise, the situation is this one. People get boring, okay, permanent happiness, but where is life, where is passion? So, from time to time, some angel tells them, ah, you are bored here. Ah, take a look at the hell, and then you will prefer to stay here, you know. It's a little bit like in our societies, which are still doing relatively well. This view into hell is provided by TV news, where it's very perverse. We secretly enjoy it, you know. On TV news, they usually, I don't know how it is in Spain, but in English, language, they usually say, now we will show you some pictures of suffering in Somalia, 
uh, warning to sensitive viewers, blah, blah, which means here you get the pleasure. Look at it, you know. It's fun exactly like this. But then I have another dream with which I will conclude. I can imagine this would be the hell I like. I imagine hell where they have orgies all the time, they drink, they roast barbecue, and the oil fire is there really for good food and so on. Just once a week, some hell administrator comes to them and says, listen guys, we have a good time, but now for 10 minutes we will be observed from heaven, so please play the game as if you suffer and so on. Otherwise they may abolish paradise. So they, oh, it's all, okay, oh, 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 and then, okay, back to the orgy and so on. Maybe this should be the ideal world we should strive for, to quote the Ernst Lubitsch title, heaven can wait. Let's create, communism is not heaven on earth. Communism is a better hell, a hell full of enjoyment. Thank you very much. Muchísimas, muchísimas gracias, Slavo. Eh, yo creo que, que ha puesto en marcha muchas de las características que mencionaba el presidente de esta institución cuando le otorgaba la medalla de oro. Eh, ha puesto, bueno, eh, ha, ha puesto en, en funcionamiento ¿no? el, el papel vigente que aún tiene la ideología. Eh, ha hablado de Hegel, lo ha usado a Hegel, a Marx y a Lacan para analizar de manera crítica nuestro presente, también con agudeza y, y de un modo provocador. Y también se ha visto a lo largo de su intervención algo que no se ha mencionado, pero que es muy conocido y sigue, y sigue siendo eficaz, que es su, su gran sentido del humor. Eh, tenemos algo de tiempo para, para unas preguntas, si les parece bien. Si levantan la mano y me miran a mí o a la persona que tiene el micrófono, eh, así les puede. I hope, this is my standard joke, I hope you and the director... Did it I in know, a proper Stalinist way. I know. No freedom you told me, yeah, yeah, yeah. the questions. No good. I want it organized. Yeah, yeah. You know, an old communist told me this. He told, I reproached him in the last year of communism, like, but you communists cannot tolerate free debates. He told me, we love free debate, just free debate has to be, have to be especially well organized to avoid enemy provocations. You know, that's it. Let's do it. Please. Hi. So I was going to ask in English. Uh, that's yeah, perfect. Um, Thank you. So um, what you were saying about uh, um, immortality and sort of mm -hmm. this idea of sort of um, something just respawning. I was thinking sort of of plastics and sort of pollution in the environment. How well we can use a million plastic bags and we we'll just mm -hmm. assume that we'll just keep coming. Mm -hmm. And the idea that um, that. Uh, you know, the collapse of the environment is sort of an inevitability. I think we're all pretty much aware that um, climate collapse is a huge problem that we have to confront at some point. But I also think that it's sort of an inevitability that uh, global capital will at some point collapse. And I was wondering what your thoughts on were, what your thoughts were on sort of if it was a race between the two, 
so to say, between global capital collapsing and the environment collapsing, and which one you think would win if it was to a race between the two, and what do you think we should focus on if you think there's one or the other together, or what your thoughts on that one? Very good question. I am afraid that the global capitalism will win by, and it's already doing pretty successfully, by appropriating the very ecological things. I read recently in a big media, was it even Newsweek, I don't know where, a very good text which explodes critically against you know, these fashionable new houses, self-sustained with solar energy, and it proves that the production, building of such houses does so much hurts so much environment and so on. That is the worst thing. I think the only intelligent thing is to follow Japan here. You know what Japan did? They concentrated all the population in 30% of their land, the uh, Osaka region, the Tokyo region, and they keep 70% out. Just some farmers can live there and so on. But And this is why a uh, German ecologist told me this, it's a wonderful vision. The best solution for ecology that we can do now is, uh, you know, ecologists say, why are you so crowded in cities? That's our solution. Pack as many people as you want in big cities where, uh, uh, where pollution is, they basically pollute each other. <laughs> and it's much better for nature to keep them majority out than to than to disperse them. So again, my fear is that uh, uh, is that in these tricky ways, uh, capitalism will reappropriate uh, 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 ecology struggle as simply a new field of investment. Because that's what capitalism always knows how to do it. You think this is a catastrophe? No, it turns it just into another field of, another field of uh, investment, because as you maybe also know, I've written about it, ecology is one of the big domains of uh, these paradoxes of belief, this fetishist disavowal. Je sais bien, mais comme I know very well, but. Yes, what you mentioned, we have all the data, we know, but we don't really believe it. In our guts, in our daily life, we don't really accepted. And I don't want to be a direct pessimist, but uh, this is horrible to say because it's not in my nature, in my the tendency of my thinking, but maybe we would need some kind of a, at least let's hope, controllable catastrophes to awaken us a little bit. Because I think that as long as possible, people will simply not React. It's the same as, it's very interesting to read history of Europe, the 20 years before World War I. Everybody knew a big European war is in preparation. And they, everybody was talking about it. But still, when the war exploded, was a mega shock. People knew it, but didn't really uh, believe in it. And I will not repeat my old lines here, just that these paradoxes of belief, how you can believe something without really believing in it and all that, are absolutely crucial 
for how things function today. We have today beliefs which are operative, even if people explicitly do not believe in it. Like a Jewish friend of mine, and don't take this in any way in an anti-Semitic way, I mean, he was making fun of himself as my friend, told me that, and I like this about Israel, you know that Israel is, or Jews in Israel are probably the most uh, atheist nation in the world. According to some statistics, around 50 even more percent of Jews in Israel don't believe. But as that friend told me, I don't believe there is, we Jews here don't believe in God, but we nonetheless believe that God gave us the land of Israel, you know, and so on. You have all these paradoxes which are the stuff of ideology today. That's why when people accuse Trump of being a hypocrite and so on, that's not the point. That's how it functions today, ideology. Sorry, I don't have more time, but I would love to go into it, because it's, again, ecology is the big field of how capital can neutralize it. Or even, for example, maybe I mentioned it a year ago here, I was shocked two years ago, I read, I don't know in which magazine, a report on Greenland. And the title was The Greening of Greenland. It's wonderful, it's so hot, they can now, first time in hundreds of years, grow vegetables there and so on. And now, with the melting of the North Pole, soon, uh, transport will be much cheaper, ships will bring all the bullshit, must produce directly from China to United States. You see, it's a mega catastrophe. But, you know, they treat it like this. No, never underestimate the capacity of people not to take seriously, not to believe what they know in some sense that it's true. Uh, do you think that my answer was so serious that now you don't dare to ask another frivolous question. No, frivolity is the only, is one of the important things. What is absolutely fake is to take things seriously, sorry to improvise a little, it's in a wrong way. I, recently, I, a trigger warning, as they say in political correct times, another vulgarity from me, but it's so important to get this lesson. You remember, if you are old enough, 20 years ago, a little bit more, the massacre of Srebrenica in Bosnia. I met recently now a linguist who is now has a scholarship in Stanford, Damir Arsenievich, who is collecting jokes from Srebrenica. They are incredibly vulgar, but they told me it's not disrespect, it's that people are so still traumatized there that the only way to survive is to make fun of it. Which, again, is not disrespect, but it's kind of a desperate admission. It's still too traumatic to look it into the eye in a serious way. And the jokes are undescribably vulgar. That's why I cannot resist the temptation to tell you one. It's about a Bosnian couple. They're legendary stuff of jokes. Uh, 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 Muyo and Fata. Muyo, husband, Fata, his wife. And they discovered a grave in Srebrenica, many disfigured men's bodies. 
because the, uh, the parts which are not disfigured are only penises. So they collect just the penises, and since they suspect that Muyo was also killed, they call Fata his wife to see if she recognizes Muyo's penis. Vulgarity, I know. But that's how real people deal with traumas. And then she takes one penis, no, this is not Muyo. No, this is not Muyo. Then with another penis, this one is not even from Srebrenica. <laughs> that's how, my God, this is how you deal with real traumas. The moment you say, yes, we suffer terribly in Srebrenica, I don't believe it. Because when you, you know, it's like with small children. When I had a son, I discovered this when he was small. If the child has a traumatic experience or falls down his head, the moment the child starts to cry means it's over. It's okay. Real trauma, you can just, this cannot even, you know, crying is already a relief. In the same sense, this dignified mourning means the worst is over. I even now answered the question I wasn't asked, so. Please. Hi. Um, so I had a question um, related to Yanis Varoufakis. Ah. Yeah. Um, I suppose in, in two parts. Like, first of all, um, a lot of what he says is regarding Europe, of course, uh, regarding Brussels, mm -hmm. is uh, somewhat unbelievable. And should we believe him 100% on his accounts? You mean uh, what he reports at the factual level in his book? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And um, secondly, I wondered if you could perhaps talk a bit about his movement. Uh, well, the movement, DM25, mm. uh, whether or not you think it's realistic and... It's where... wonderful. Sleep. Sorry to interrupt you immediately. I give you a background. Isn't it 24? Or is it 25? I think it's 25. I the... hope I'm wrong because it would have been... Well, you're a member, you know. Should you know... <laughs> Um, okay, okay, so okay. <laughs> uh, well, but, but, but that's it, that's it. Um, oh, no, yeah, yeah. nothing else. Uh, you know, uh, uh, first, the reason I respect Varoufakis is that with regard to Syriza, I don't know, I say this about him as my very good friend, I told him this face to face. I don't know how realistic was his proposal when he was finance minister. But I think he was onto something real. One small item is, did you notice that after the crisis was over and Syriza became the biggest executor of austerity, he, Varoufakis, was the only one put to court. Okay, the case was dismissed, but why? Because, you remember, he has some solution with some kind of digital ersatz uh, currency or what? And they, he told me it was horrible. He wanted to take control to get some bank data about Greek financial structures, and they prevented him as finest minister to do it. Why was he such a torrent? Because he knew, I think, in this he was right. Of course, we should say no to Brussels pressure. But at the same time, now here we may respectfully disagree. I don't believe in, uh, in Grexit. I think it would have been a catastrophe. And this part of Varoufakis, 
when he reports on how he visited Schäuble and threatened him with, if you don't give, a com give us a compromise here, I, uh, uh, we will do the Grexit. You know, what was Schäuble's answer? Fine. How much? We can give you 30 billions to do it and so on. How do I know it? Because I spoke with some other participants, the Slovene finance minister at that time, who all confirmed this to me. Brussels was not aware of Grexit. Secretly they looked for it. Why? Because they wanted this. Okay, let the idiot do this, there will be hunger, chaos, and the left will learn another lesson. You know, like intelligent conservatives like a more radical left to be in power every 20 years, and then there is economic catastrophe, whatever, okay, people learn the lesson, and so on. So, uh, what Varoufakis tried to do, again, I don't know how realist it was, to find a third way to remain in Europe, but do the mess inside Europe with all his banking plans, and so on. I think that the other two, or either austerity or Grexit uh, would have been a catastrophe. My problem with him, in a very friendly way, is this may sound horrible, what I will say now. He still underestimates the power of ideology. He thinks that if only the people would truly uh, be asked or mobilized to say what they want, we would get a much more democratic, open, better Europe. And I asked him a simple question, already at that round table that we had two, three years ago with Assange, in, Assange only on telepresence, of course, in London. I asked him, but are you aware that if we were to ask by referendums people in some countries, key countries, what to do with immigrants, their stance would have been much harsher against immigrants than the official Brussels. For example, and this is tragically true, a, a Slovene moderate left member of Brussels parliament told me that there in Brussels, when they were debating immigrants, against all, uh, he, in closed meetings, he always defended greater rights, financial help for immigrants, but he was afraid to say this publicly because it would trigger hatred against him in Slovenia among ordinary people and so on. So I think, and you know what was interesting? Varoufakis's answer to me, it was, yes, because people are manipulated, uh, we would have won if only there would have been two weeks of truly free debate. That's pure utopia. What would you have done? Uh, 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 confiscate private media and do some public TV? And uh, don't underestimate, but also don't overestimate ordinary people. I don't believe that there is some common wisdom and so on in ordinary people. We are all in the same sheet, confused. Nobody knows it. We intellectuals know very little. Don't don't think that ordinary people, we just have to listen to ordinary people and so on. You listen to ordinary people, of course it's also manipulation, but then you have uh, Orban, you have now the new Austrian Chancellor and so on and so on. So I don't share, unfortunately, his Varoufakis' trust, trust in this 
let's call it true democracy, in the sense of let's just listen to real concerns of ordinary people. For quite many ordinary people, for example, in England, some leftists told me this, radical leftists, but of course, only in private. They told me, I don't want to go public with this. That, uh, for example, in some London suburbs, ordinary white poor families are concerned, small conflicts with uh, immigrants and so on and so on, not refugees, they are better, but... Uh, either Muslims or even my ex-nations, uh, Serbia, Croatia, their immigrants can be pretty tough and so on. What I'm just saying is that uh, ideology is our daily life and ordinary people are in ideology, they live ideology. So don't underestimate this and especially don't mask it. The greatest mistake of the left liberal press is when there are some problems now there again with some Pakistani gangs raping white girls and Pakistanis are very wise that they always focus on white girls from poor workers' suburbs. They know if you mess with upper middle classes. But what I want to say is that uh, the mistake is that they try to downplay this. We will not report about it in the media, it would, you know. And then, then you have the catastrophe that we have. If it will go on like this, you, Spain are, okay, you have your, how do you pronounce your, uh, Rajoy or whatever. Okay, but uh, you can even get something much worse. Look, now we have in Austria, Kurds, and this is for us a wonderful joke in Slovenia. Kurds in Austria, you know, they're prime minister now. In Slovene, Kurds is an extremely vulgar word for penis. Like, in, it's mo much more than pika, poronga, or, or, yeah. And so, you know, our, 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 uh, our newspapers played wonderfully with this, like, Kurds will lead us into bright future. <laughs> so, no, but what I want to say is that uh, uh, that's why movements like uh, uh, Podemos or in America, in United States, um, uh, Bernie Sanders, their miracle is that they did succeed to mobilizing people which, which otherwise would have voted. Like everybody knows that many of Bernie Sanders voters would have otherwise voted for Trump. And it is because Sanders were so brutally, was so brutally outmaneuvered by Hillary that no, they didn't return to Trump, they just, they just stayed out. And one can argue, some statistics do show this, that it's precisely in this way that the way she brutally disposed of Sanders that Hillary this was a uh, revenge. So I'm sorry I got lost a little bit, but that my uh, about economy, I don't know enough to judge to what extent his proposals are serious, but I basically do take them seriously. I think he is not totally bluffing as economist. And especially something that he has learned me. I think that the official economists are bluffing much more. You, how it's, Varoufakis always repeats this, economy today is a new 
form of magic thinking, you know. They really know so little. Look at uh, the financial crisis of 2008. It came out of nowhere. Where, where, where were all those big economists and so on and so on? Economy is today, I developed this in my book, I don't forgot which one, uh, uh, too many, uh, that how economy is a new form of animism today, you know? We, like, we are, how do our newspapers report on it? Uh, uh, the market displayed anxiety, the market, you know, my God, we have now new animistic forces in which we believe much more than in Christian God. Tenemos tiempo para una pregunta más, si la hay. Por ahí. Ah, you are looking for the one, the leader. No, no. Sorry? Yes? Um, you mentioned before how uh, black humor brought relief to real trauma, like the provision of humor yeah. could... Um, well, that brought to mind the fact that in in this country right now, there's like great controversy because they're criminalizing those forms of expression and like black humor on Twitter about tragedy or terrorism or fascism in Spain and how do you think um, criminalizing black humor and that those forms of relief affects the way our relationship with tragedy and terrorism and... It's a very good question and let me avoid a misunderstanding. I don't simply say, let's just make fun of it all, Holocaust, and no, 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 no. Uh, I would, my first gesture would have been that we have humor and humor. I'm well aware that there... I, okay, I'll put it like this. I violently disagree with the thesis of Umberto Eco's name of the rose, that humor is the subversive force and so on. Every brutal totalitarian regime has its own internal humor making fun of the poor or its victims. That's the cynicism of power. We have this type of humor. And for example, I read I forgot where, but a wonderful analysis of the change of humor in Soviet Union in late 20s. Bolsheviks have a certain type of humor. Then, with Stalinism, humor totally changed. There still were jokes, but they were extremely brutal, arrogant jokes, even publicly, privately. They mostly made fun of those who took their own ideology seriously, making, and so on and so on. So, uh, it's uh, it's, uh, so it's not just that I am against dignity for, for example, one of my traumatic experiences in the last years under socialism, when things were opening and so on, was that one of the strategies of those in power was to try to ruin dissident element meetings because they could not prohibit them any longer through vulgar humor. I remember it was very traumatic, one meeting when somebody, an old lady, was reporting on her experience in jail. 
in a very dignified way and so on. And there was obviously a police provocateur there and he didn't do it at the level of fact, like, oh, you are criticizing our social... No, he would think like, are you not satisfied that they didn't rape you enough there and so on? Total, and so it's vulgar, total vulgarity and so on. So they're absolutely... Humor is ambiguous. So that's why I disagree, again, with Umberto Eco, no? You also have absolutely crucial the arrogant humor of those in power to be confronted by other types of humor. But uh, the problem with, again, with uh, the problem with political correctness is what? Let's say you prohibit certain political or racial sexual jokes. Okay, there should be limits. I am a feminist and so on. I'm just saying that prohibiting it, I wonder how it really works. Maybe it pushes it underground. For me, this politically correct attitude of eternally feeling guilt, you know, my God, I used that expression. Wasn't I already racist or sexist there and so on and so on. My ideal society would be the one in which you can use all the dirty words, dirty jokes, even apparently racist jokes, but they simply, on the basis of friendship and respect, wouldn't function in a racist way. Like, that's how I deal with my friends. And the most wonderful experience that I had was uh, my son had a black not Fred, when he was young in elementary school, a black boy, and I was very proud of him, was his best friend. His mother came, I don't know why, from where, to Slovenia. And, uh, and we were really friends. And I always make towards him, even now, because I met him now at the graduation ceremony, he told me he remembers these extremely bad taste remarks, you know, like once in the first, second year, you know, this elementary mathematics, where, you know, you take one, two apples, you cut them each into six pieces, then you take three pieces back, double the amount you add, how much you get at the end. And he has some trouble, this black boy. I couldn't resist extremely bad taste humor, and I said, maybe you are using that example for this guy. Give him rather the example of one ape is playing with one banana which is cut into two and he loved this so much that now comes the beauty sorry I'm not lost once I was he came to play with my son and I was just in a very bad mood so I encountered him I went to open the door and very friendly I just greeted him in a friendly way he looked at me worried and went and then two minutes later my son came to me and said What's wrong? Why didn't you insult my friend? Are you mad at him? He is very worried about you and so on, you know? That friendship is always, not always, there are people, and I respect this. It's not just we all start insulting each other. <laughs> but uh, there is a certain type of very authentic friendship, which precisely as a confirmation of this friendship includes obscenities and so on. And the logic is very 
beautiful. The lo underlying logic is a kind of implicit negation. It's we are such good friends that we can afford even this and we know that it will not hurt us. But nonetheless, again, I think we should be pragmatic here. I'm not naive. I'm not saying let's just allow everything because, you know, racism can get very brutal here. And that's the problem. The problem is that although in a concrete situation you can always see very well, is this humor brutal racism or is just a much more gentle irony and so on? But it's very difficult to formalize it. This is allowed this is not allowed, and so on, and so on. No, it's, we have to be pragmatic here. I don't just believe in the efficiency of simple uh, 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 prohibitions, because you know what's the problem? In the United States, you can see this. The politically correct left got so moralized in this prohibition that uh, uh, the populist, vulgar, alt-right is almost monopolizing now all this area of innuendos, irony, and so on, and so on. It's a very complex situation. You see, muy complejo. Bueno, eh, lo tenemos que, que dejar aquí. Muchísimas gracias a todos por venir. Si sí quería pedir un aplauso para, para Slavo por su generosidad. Glad to be here for very racist reasons for you. When first as a child I heard about Spain, I thought, now this will be a very strange remark from you. I thought, oh, a Latin country, dirty and so on. And then at least in Madrid and Barcelona, I was surprised how you really seem to join the best of both worlds. The least the Latin liveliness. But at the same time, cities are efficient, clear, much more efficient and clean than some Middle and North European cities, I can tell you. And you know, we all, we want to cheat. We want to have a cake and eat it. We want a city which is lively and so on, but at the same time, clean, efficient. And you are not doing so bad here. I'm great. Thank you.